0: Welcome to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Hello and welcome to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson. Is it a week since we did this?
1: Oh, Kevin, I miss you so much. I wish it was less than a week.
0: Uh, I'd like it to be
1: every, I don't know, <laughs> a couple of days.
0: Oh, uh, yes. Oh, a daily dose of Food Bites, everyone. Well, you can because you can go back and listen to old episodes and there's that many of them you could listen for nearly a year. There's
1: about 270, yeah, I think, at so, last So, count. you know,
0: if you, could, you could get through a year. Yes. And, uh, and just have us every day. What a cheery thought that is. You could
1: have us every day on a nice slice of sourdough
0: toast. Fortunately, our guest today is a very funny man, a most entertaining man with a really interesting story, where he comes from.
1: Oh, Will Anderson. He comes from my territory. Yeah. He's a Gippsland boy. He grew up on a dairy farm, but he ended up a stand-up comic and then sort of going off into television and radio.
0: Well, hasn't he just uh, got himself, you know, writer, author, mm. uh, TV presenter, radio presenter, stand-up comedian, uh, mm. award winner. Winner. He's and several amazing. podcasts
1: on the go, yeah, including Willosophy. Philosophy and-
0: yep. yeah, so, busy man and has taken some time out. Uh, he's appearing at the moment at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, uh, workshopping a show over there. So, we caught up with him and uh, had a chat. So, you'll hear that in just a minute. And our...
1: Oh. Food yeah, bites, we've food gone pole. all very retro. It's back to the seventies. Kevin, get what your. What do
0: you mean? I've gone retro? I am retro. Get
1: your get your your jets crackers out.
0: I <laughs> uh, beg your pardon. That's a, you know what that? You know what that? Although means.
1: my mum favoured Clicks biscuits. Remember those? Yeah, but this well,
0: they don't rhyme with anything. Yeah, this so.
1: particular food pole is deviled eggs. Uh, you know when you cut your boiled yeah, eggs yeah, in yeah, half yeah, and yeah, you yeah. put po- you pipe the the yolk yeah, back yeah, in. No, 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 and no Devils no. on horseback, which just to clarify is your bacon wrapped around. Your prunes. That
0: was such a 70s yes. posh food.
1: It a was very posh. posh. It was posh. Toothpicks made it very posh. I, re-
0: I remember being at functions and they'd walk around and you go, Oh, the devil's on
1: horseback. Oh, you know. I remember
0: the first time I said, What are they? What, what's the thing mm. with the bacon wrapped around them? Someone said, Oh, the devil's on horseback. And I went,
1: Those 70s parties were classic. My dad's classic party trick was he'd have a big bottle of Galliano and he'd pour a dozen (laughs) glasses. He'd take a tray around the room Uh. and he'd set them alight and they'd have this little blue gas... Like flame. And,
0: you know, we do. they do shots now and it's like avant-garde. <laughs> yeah. But back in the 70s, we were doing all that sort of mm. stuff. We were doing other stuff in the 70s that they're still doing now too. But we'll get to all that oh, later. What
1: is, what is that?
0: Let's get to <laughs> – you get your keys and throw yeah, them in the middle. There's
1: a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not full yes. of chips. Yes,
0: let's go to Will Anderson now before we get into trouble. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier.
1: I reckon we should uh, open, Will, by going uh, back to your past because where you've ended up is is a far cry from where you you started out, which is uh, in in dairy country, you're a Gippsland boy. Can you firstly just paint a picture for us uh, what growing up in that environment was like?
2: Anderson's Road, Denison, on a road (laughs) named after my grandfather who built the road by hand after the Second World War. My dad's managed to make it about 500 meters down that road in his <laughs> nearly 80 years on this planet it's really he has he could not answer this question if you said to him how did you get from where you came from to where you are now he'd go I walk down the road I didn't need to you. it's fine it was all in walking distance and when I was a kid I guess you know you when you're a dairy farmer's kid particularly when you're the eldest child of a dairy farmer you know there is some you know, Expectation, I guess it is traditional for the eldest child to end up being the person who took over the farm. But I think there was a moment pretty early on around 14 or 15, where it became apparent to me that really farming life wasn't the life that I wanted. And I remember having this idea in my mind that somehow I'd be disappointing my parents if I told them that. And I remember having that conversation around, you know, 14 or 15, when I was starting to plan what it is that I might want to do with my life or what my future direction might be or whether I'd be applying to university and those sort of things. And I remember sitting down with them, you know, and saying, look, I just, I'm so sorry, but I don't think that this farm life is for me. And it's fair to say the look on their face, Kevin, was not disappointment. It was... Relief. Relief <laughs> is the uh, emotion I'm looking for. Clear, undisguised relief. They were like, yeah, this is good for us too. We'd like to keep this farm in the family and we don't think you're the person to run it. And by that stage, they'd had a spare. There was a Prince Harry in the family, so <laughs> it was okay. There was someone to take over the Royal Dairy duties. And uh, my brother, who is also actually a redhead like Harry, uh, ended up going back and taking over the farm. So occasionally. My brother does send me pictures of, uh, you know, because essentially, and I hope my parents outlive me, by the way, but if, you know, if they don't, if at some stage they're here no longer, technically, I guess there's a third of that farm that will be part of my inheritance but of course the farm's going to go to the person who's actually working the farm it's not like (laughs) it's not like suddenly i'm going to go back and take that third of the cows and third of the property although my brother does send me pictures of it occasionally he goes this is actually technically your paddock here have a look at this what would you like to grow here and then he sends me suggestions most of them medicinal cannabis (laughs) to be honest
1: (laughs) was it your typical meat and three veg type uh lifestyle growing up on the farm
2: Oh, absolutely. Meat and three veg. And when you say meat, we used to have this thing called the, um, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think it was called a mobile butcher van, I think is the technical name for it. But basically for people to imagine this at home, imagine a Mr. Whippy van. <laughs> if instead of them making you ice creams, they brought the Mr. Whippy van around to your house and then they put a cow in the back and a day later you had a tub fridge full of that Like it was like living with, you know, Dexter, that murderer. And basically (laughs) you would see a cow go in the back and then there would be this tub freezer down below that would have everything. And we're talking, you know, everything that you can like make out of a cow. So you've got like sausages and steaks and roasts and every single part of the cow. Technically you could go down there and do a 3D jigsaw puzzle with the stuff in the deep freezer and reconstruct a cow if you wanted to. So anyway, I've been a vegetarian for 25
1: years. (laughs) Strangely enough,
0: <laughs> um, Sarah's from that that part of the world, from the Gippsland part of the world. She's from Currambula, uh, but uh, it is, is, was there something about that part of the world that, that, that still remains special to you.
2: Oh, I mean, anywhere that your family has such deep connections with. So, my grandfather James, he was uh, you know the local mayor and councillor. My um, other grandfather William, on the other side, I'm named after both my grandfathers. William James is my name, and uh, after both my granddads and they were both quite well-established and respected families in the local area. So the roots of the Andersons and the Pattersons go pretty deep in that part of the world. So absolutely, there's a family connection. And I, the thing that I find funny uh, in particular, is I can be at an event like the AFL Grand Final, and I can be there with my dad. I remember taking my dad to the AFL Grand Final, and uh, we went we went a few times together. He's a Long fan, now I'm a Bulldogs fan, so he's been a lot happier than me in his life. Yeah. But I've taken him to a few Grand Finals. My dad has never owned an album in his life, never listened to like you know music. That's just not his thing. He listens to the radio, he listens to the farming programs, he listens to the cricket. You know that's the sort of guy he is does not listen to music. And I still remember. Uh, when Meatloaf famously played so terribly at the AFL Grand Final, my dad and I were not far from where Meatloaf was that day. And even my dad, who knows nothing about music, I remember distinctly when Meatloaf finished, he just turned to me and said, was that meant to sound like that?
1: <laughs> I think Andrew Demetrio was asking himself the same question, wasn't
2: he? <laughs> so I, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I like I have great family connections with that part of the world and like, you know, it is, yeah, you know, beautiful to be able to share those sort of things with my family. But my dad is one of those guys that has never left Anderson's Road and you'll be sitting at an event like that and some people will be coming up to say good day to me because they might know me from, you know, watching me on the TV or listening to the radio or the podcast or something like that. And then as many people will just be coming up to my dad and go, Graham, Graham Anderson, right, from Tennyson. And I'm like, you've never <laughs> left the road. How do you know as many people here at the MCG as I know?
0: I love it. It, that is that beautiful thing about the the country living there. But the, the thing about that is that the, the, that honesty and that uh, that rawness of uh, of opinion does that did that kind of shape where you are now in many ways. When you think about that,
2: it's funny because I, I try to work that out sometimes where it came from, what where my attitude came from. I I, I definitely think that there's a a stoicism in what I do, like which is very much my dad would never identify himself as being a stoic. Like my dad would never identify. He's not a religious person, but he's not, this will explain very much what my dad's like, not a religious person, but not anti-religious, just never really occurred to him that it would be a thing that he would be interested in. And it's very much the same with music. He's not anti-music. He just never really occurred to him that music would be a thing that he's interested in. He just, he has a very, like the thing about farming and it, people will say sometimes off oh, stand up comedy. It must be the hardest job in the world. And I'm like, I grew up on a dairy farm. I know what hard work is, yeah. you know, like, you know, it, like, I don't have to do gigs at four o'clock in the morning. And if I do, they're at a radio station where someone's making me a latte. You know, you're not backing up behind a cow trying to avoid what's coming out the back and catch what comes out of the middle. Like, that's hard work. <laughs> you know, as a farmer, you can't send a younger, younger farmer out to warm up the cows before you go out. <laughs> <so> that, <laughs> you know, there's no round, no round of applause at the dairy at four thirty in the no. morning. Uh, um, but my mother... She had a bit of city life, and between the two of them, she was the one who had the artistic passion. And in fact, I got introduced to a lot of the comedy that I like because this is because uh, if you look if you met my mum and you meet my dad, there's there's not a lot about the two of them would that would explain me. But what does explain me is that my dad used to go to bed at, you know, he's a farmer, he'd get up at irrigate or check the cows and stuff at two three in the morning, which means often he would go to bed at, seven or eight o'clock at night. And it was very traditional for Graham to pop off to the bedroom, you know, put his wireless in his, you know, wireless transistor in his ear and, uh, you know, he would go to bed. And then, of course, my mum, it must have been quite a lonely life, really, when the kids went to bed. So there was a time when I was, I guess, 11, 12, 13, maybe just a little younger than I probably should have been to be consuming the sort of things that I was. But Mm -hmm. clearly looking back on it, my mum was looking for some company. So suddenly around that age, you know, I get to be able to stay up a little bit later and watch TV with my mum. And we would watch things together like The Young Ones or Black Adder or Aloha Lo or, you know, these British comedies, you know, Faulty Towers, obviously, Monty Python and, you know, a lot of Ben Elton stuff around there. And then when it came to Australian TV, that turned into shows like Andrew Denton's The Money or the Gun, Australia Standing in it, um, particularly pivotal for me around the age of 14 or 15 was The Big Gig which was just one of those shows that came along at the time and spoke in a voice that really I responded to. And so that's where it actually comes from. It doesn't come from mum or dad combined. It comes from sitting alongside mum, watching these programs, not even – always really understanding what the humor was or what the joke was, but just really loving this idea that I was clearly getting to stay up a little bit later and share an experience with my mum that maybe I wasn't meant to be having yet. But also now that I reflect on that, you know, she was getting to have someone to watch those shows with, someone to laugh with, somebody to have that company with. So that's very much where whatever voice I have comedically and whatever voice I have about the world, I, it really started with those moments.
1: Yeah, well, you you talk there about how um, how many of us know you from uh, whether it be radio, whether it be television or podcast. But you've described yourself as essentially a stand-up comedian, and really, you've just been lucky to do other things on top of that as well. Is, has that been the case for you that everything else has just been a, a byproduct of, of of your core occupation as a as a stand-up?
2: It is. It's quite funny, really. Sometimes that because for me. It, it is thinking about stand-up, working on stand-up, focusing myself through stand-up, seeing, seeing myself as a stand-up probably takes about 90% of my creative time. And sometimes you start doing other things and they just keep happening. And after a while, you're also that. And you didn't really set out to be that at all. I mean, Gruen is such an example of that, probably the perfect example of that. I mean, we're about to go into our 15th year of doing that show. That makes it one of the longest running uh, original Australian television programs of all time, like continuously running. And none of us, I think, think it's our full-time job. <laughs> you know, no one involved in that show. I think that's the probably the weirdest thing of all is that, you know, everyone who's involved in that show has other jobs. Gruen's sort of our little side project that we do that has become this thing that is I guess if I'd stayed out of my career and I wanted to be a television person, then Gruen would be my calling card of, Hey, I did this thing that was really successful, but because not only I, as the host of the program, don't see it as my major focus, but also our panelists, most of them are, you know, industry experts, you know, either in advertising or advertising adjacent industries. And so for them, it's not their number one job as well. And I think probably, that has significantly contributed to the success of the show. That was a hard sentence to get out. (laughs) (laughs) I I think my Zoom's dropping out, guys. I (laughs) Um, I think that's actually been part of the reason the show has been successful. Is that we've been never afraid to tinker with it. We've never been afraid to say, let's try this or let's try to do this better, because we're not sitting there saying, hey, this is our main thing. This is the thing that, you know, determines how we, you know, send our kids to school or pay our mortgages or any of those pressures that sometimes come with making a project like that. Sometimes the creative choices that people make when they're making a television programming, like I mean, this is an area that you would understand, you know, is that is that they're making choices based on how do we keep this show on air? How do we appeal to this particular demographic? How do we serve the you know the company that gives us the permission to make the show in the first place or the advertisers who support the show? All these things are, are fed into the decision-making process of what creatively appears on air. Whereas at Gruen, we have the complete luxury of it not being that that Mm. all we want to do is we just want to make this thing as good as it can possibly be. And, of course, we don't have the commercial pressures being at the ABC and also being a show that is literally about advertising and marketing. It is the one program that you literally rule out the advertising and marketing department coming in (laughs) and giving you any notes on how you should be making the show. And, in fact, it's the only show probably where they don't want more of their ads in the show. They'd prefer less of their ads in the show.
0: (laughs) Yeah, You don't get a little message from the sales manager coming in. Can you, you know, when you mentioned that McDonald's thing could you do that again? No, no, thanks. Please don't mention nope. McDonald's ever again.
2: Yeah, uh, in fact, there are particular advertising companies that, when they contact us about being involved in the pitch or other things involved in the program, do try to like work out how does Will feel about our new Telstra ad? <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice, nice little powerful position to be in. Hey, uh, this is uh, this program is called Food Bites with Sarah Patterson. So, are you any good in the kitchen? <laughs>
2: I, I, my my capabilities in the kitchen outweigh my time that I have to actually cook things. So I'm not a bad cook. I, again, part of being raised in a, like particularly on a dairy farm was like my mum cooked all the time and I, Like, I'm an eater, but also just like spending time with my mum and doing things that didn't involve going out and being a farmer. So (laughs) I stayed at home and learnt to cook quite well. And when I, particularly during the pandemic, when I had the time to get back into cooking, and I love baking in particular. uh, I really like baking. There's something about, I don't have an instinct. It's very so, CWA the,
1: of you. Yeah,
2: yeah, well, you can't. You know, my initials are WA, so you know what I mean. Oh, so it it's stands for up Country up, Will Anderson, not Country Women's Association. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I guess the way that I would describe it, and it's very much like you know my comedy as well, which is that I am not instinctively creative. So I'm not one of those cooks who gets in the kitchen and sees a bunch of ingredients and in their head imagines how they'll all just combine together and can taste the food and add something else. Baking suits me because as you would know, the strength of baking is, can you follow instructions?
1: And the the thing that I am
2: very good at is following instructions. If you have a good recipe, and you tell me what to do on that recipe, I will follow that recipe. And if the recipe is good, the thing that I make will be good. And that is very much what I am like in the kitchen. You give me a good recipe, I can make you a great meal. But if you just give me a bunch of ingredients, if you hand me a mystery box and say, see what you can do with that, I'm like, well, I guess we're just going to eat the apple out of the box because I have no
1: <laughs> idea. There you go. Will Anderson's a baker. That's, yeah. it, that's the scoop. Hey, um, Will, are you a coffee man? I mean, you've got a pretty hectic lifestyle going on. Do you need a coffee to get you started?
2: I'm too much. Like by anybody's standards, I drink too much coffee. Like even by my own standards, (laughs) I drink too much coffee. So I would probably average, I mean, sorry, probably six cups of coffee a day, but probably eight to 10 shots of coffee a day because those are, you know, often I'm drinking big coffees. And I've often said that I think the thing I like the most about being on the television is that someone will bring you like a coffee whenever you ask. It's honestly the best thing. Everyone's like, oh, studio day must be hard. It's such a long day. I'm like, I sit at a desk and whenever I want a coffee, someone brings me a (laughs) coffee. It's the best. Uh, I'm a milk coffee person, old school dairy. You know, I've disappointed my parents enough, so I'm not (laughs) going off the dairy. I've got to contribute to the Anderson family legacy. So- um normally i start the day with like i i went out this morning before we spoke and went for a bit of a walk and so normally i'll have like a a, like a large latte double shot you know at at the start of the walk and then i'll have another one at the end of the walk and it's reasonably early in the morning when we're speaking so that'll still happen for about the next four or five hours i'll have a coffee coffee every a couple of hours because i i love it i like not not just the, you know, the obviously the drug capacity of it, you know, you know, disguising, you know, your tiredness and, you know, giving you some sense of being alert, but I just love the flavor, the taste, the smell. Like I often, when I'm in a new city, because a lot of being a stand up comedian is being away, you know, by yourself. When you're speaking to me, I'm currently in Adelaide at the Adelaide Fringe and, you know, I'm in a little one bedroom Oaks apartment for two and a half weeks by myself. It's not, You know, it's not much fun to just sit around, you know, enjoying the beige and beige, the beige on beige decor (laughs) I'm staying. So what I tend to do is, you know, try to get out and exercise during the day, which for me is just walking. And I am – I'm not a power walker, you know. when This is not, you know, Glenn Robbins on Kath and Kim. This is very (laughs) much – yeah, the difference between me going for an exercise walk and somebody going for a stroll would be hard to, you know, determine from each other. But so n- mostly I just reward myself with treats. So, yeah, the idea is I'll walk an hour and a half, I'll find a nice coffee shop, I'll have a coffee. I'll walk an hour and a half, I'll find myself a nice coffee shop, I'll have a coffee and a muffin. That's It's like the world's most peaceful and relaxed marathon. Yeah. You,
0: so you've got a sweet tooth that goes with the coffee?
2: <laughs> yeah. So I'm a, it's, it's funny because – because I don't eat meat, um, and I, I stopped drinking alcohol. So, funnily enough, I the weight is hard to keep on now. So I can I, I'm actually actually at that point in my life where having cut out alcohol and and um and cut out meat, where I can really eat whatever I want mostly, and I have an incredibly um. When I'm working in particular, I eat quite healthily when I'm not working, but when I'm working, my body goes into overdrive with, you know, what it craves in order to get through the day. So when I'm doing shows, I always have a, like a, like a proper can of Coca-Cola beforehand, like, cause I need the sugar. Like, um, you know, I'll, I, I, I eat cake probably every day, like, or some sort of cake, you know, cake or a caramel slice or a muffin or a, like, I really like, you know, proper I'm in Adelaide at the moment, so the poor people at Hague's Chocolate have seen me. Like I've I've been here less than a week, and I've been in three times. I might have to go to a different location next time. <laughs> it's, it's just, I keep thinking I'll stock up so I don't have to go back, but that just means I've got more stuff in the house to eat at the moment. So, no, I'm a – yeah, i got a sweet tooth, but I, no, I like all – I mean, the funny thing about not eating meat is that it really widened my palate because – previously when i did eat meat i was one of those people that would traditionally i could go to the same restaurant and order the same meal at the same restaurant you know if i found something that i liked every time we went there i would eat that exact same thing that i liked. that's that's that can be my personality whereas with Particularly in the early days, it's a bit different now that vegetarian food is so widely accessible. But, you know, you can imagine 20 years ago when I'm touring regional Australia, there's not exactly a huge range of what you'd be considered to be vegetarian food. And so what ended up happening was you would end up going to places and you would just end up having whatever the vegetarian option was. And funnily enough, As long as, you know, they have some creative thinking. I mean, there was a period of time where that was just, you know, eggplant, capsicum and, you know, whatever in a stack. That was pretty much Australian (laughs) vegetarian food. But but now what happens is you tend to be more creative around your eating choices. Like, I mean, obviously, yeah, particularly the Asian food world, like, opens itself up when you're talking about vegetarian eating and the diversity of food that you can have. But really – like if you talk about the african cuisines and you know there's a lot of places around the world where yeah the majority of the diet they're eating isn't meat based and so it's actually made me a you know so i i i like all food yeah you know, all within the you know within the boundaries of what i've constructed for myself which is not eating meat and uh, um other than that i'll pretty much eat anything okay.
1: Uh, it's been well documented, Will, that you you deal day to day with a, with, with a chronic pain. Um, how is that side of uh, your life going these days? Is it is it um, just kind of uh, stable at the moment? How has your How do you have to adapt to uh, to deal with with that um, that pain?
2: Yeah. And so if you'd ask me, th- this is the thing about chronic pain, and anyone who suffers from chronic pain will understand what this is like. If you'd asked me that question a week ago. I probably would have told you that I'm the best that I've been in two years. I was having such a good run. Um, you know, I hadn't really been traveling a lot over the summer. I'd been able to really look after myself, sleep, sleep in the same bed every night. You know, my bed, a bed that's set up to my, you know, needs. And you can have regular sleep, you know, you can really kind of get in a rhythm. And yet I'm I'm a week away from that now. I've been in Adelaide for a week, you know, sleeping in a you know, sleeping in a an apartment bed that is It says that it's a queen size bed, but really is two single beds jammed together. (laughs) And if you roll over the weird place in the middle of the night, you end up in the crease in the middle. And, you know, you're standing on stage at night doing shows, and your body is suddenly, you know, traveling. You're traveling on airplanes and all these sort of things. And I must admit, when I got up this morning, I, I specifically got up and went for a walk because I was just in so much pain this morning. It was one of those mornings where I was the the actual the alarm didn't the alarm did not go off to wake me up mm. the alarm in the hips went off this morning to wake me up and it was that oh. point where you're like I'd love to get some more sleep but my body is not going to allow it so I might as well get up and get moving so uh, that but that is the experience of chronic pain and that's part of the tough thing about you know the three or four million Australians who you know experience some kind of chronic pain is that if you have a broken leg you know, you're getting around on crutches, you get a fair amount of sympathy generally from people around you and people in society, you know, people can understand it and empathize with it. But often chronic pain is firstly invisible. Often, you know, people who suffer from chronic pain, you know, it is invisible. But also because you have good days and bad days, sometimes people get confused by that, you know, like... The idea that you can be going all right, that you can be moving quite well, and then they see you one day and they're like, what's going on? And you're like, well, this is this is what I always live with. I'm just having a bad day today or I'm having a good period at the moment. And, and I think that that is one of the toughest challenges for people who have ongoing pain is not only the management of it, but the management of other people's expectations mm-hmm. about what you can and can't do. Because sometimes you can absolutely do all the things that you've signed up to do. And then some days... Through no fault of your own, you wake up and you think, I mean, even so on a day like this, when my hip is really sore and it's going up into my back, I'm sitting down to talk to you now. Um, I know that I have to sit down again in a couple of hours to do another thing. I'll really have to specifically for the next two hours in between, make sure that I go out and walk, that I keep moving, that I'm stretching, that Mm. I'm really getting ready to be able to. So suddenly it becomes from just being able to live your day one day, it becomes about, okay, now I've got to manage the rest of the day to make sure that I can manage this pain. I can get through the things that I need to be able to do. And then of course I've got a show tonight after all of that. So you, what you don't want to do is exhaust yourself so much that you're not capable of doing your work in the evening. So it's, it's been great. I've had a really good run with it and you know today you just got me on a shitty yeah. day unfortunately.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, you're in bloody fine spirits for someone who's in uh, in that sort of pain. The Melbourne Comedy Festival is is kind of like the pinnacle of of, of your uh, I guess it's is is that your sort of Mount Everest that you go to every year that is your thing that you you missed it because of covid so you had a consecutive run there of 20 uh, something years. Um what do you look forward to this year now that will actually be for the first time in a long time back to 100% normal?
2: It, it does feel a little like that. So, I so yeah, 2020 would have been 25 years in a row at the Comedy wow. Festival for me. And it's funny that you talk about the idea of Mount Everest because absolutely when I first started doing the Comedy Festival, it was Everest. It felt like the biggest thing in the entire world. It felt like – well, yeah, and Everest is probably a very good example because – you know, you you later find out that Everest isn't the tallest mountain in the world. You know, that there is also the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as well, and you yeah. might want to climb that one. But uh, to me, it felt enormous. And that's funny when I look back on it, because... I guess when I first did the comedy festival, it was six or seven years into being a comedy festival. It wasn't actually that big. Most of it happened at the Melbourne town hall. There was only 30 or 40 shows in total. All of them fitted it on, you know, one small black board out the front of the town hall. Someone sent me a photo, I think, of my first or second year recently. And I was amazed at the fact that it was only like 20 or 25 shows on the board. You know, there's 600, 700 shows at the Melbourne comedy festival now. It's it's one of the biggest cultural events in Australia. Millions of people go to see shows. It's huge for the economy. It is an internationally renowned festival. It is known as being one of the you know top three comedy festivals in the entire world. And comedy has, you know, grown to be this you know multi million dollar billion dollar industry worldwide. And so, it's. It's funny when when I started, it already felt like Everest. Mm -hmm. The idea that you know, for the last twenty five years, Everest has kept growing. (laughs) You know, every year it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, there is this idea that, for me, it's always been the first thing that went in my diary. All I ever really wanted to be. And I guess this goes back to you know what we started talking about, which is this idea of how do you see yourself. For me, all I've ever really wanted to do was the Melbourne Comedy Festival. That was my dream. That was my ambition. That's what I considered to be being a successful comedian was to do a show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And then the idea that, you know, you'd see the gala on TV and that was certainly you'd be like, I want to be on the gala. And then, of course, you're like, oh, I'd love to host the gala. And then maybe I'd like to host the gala again. And and now I'm at the point where I say no to the gala because... You know, I have an attitude that, you know, I've done it probably 20 times over the years, and that every time I say yes to doing that show, that means there's a, there's a slot there that isn't there for somebody who would really, you know, appreciate that rite of passage, that opportunity. So now when they ask, you know, I thank them for asking me and I very politely say no, and I hope that they give that slot to someone who needs it more in their career. The idea that I would be there. You know, you start out with this dream or ambition that you would just get to do these things. You never imagine there might be a point, quarter of a century later, where you would politely decline to do those things so that other people can have those same opportunities. Mm -hmm. You never imagine that would be even something that would be possible. That's something that, you know, when I started out, if you go into the Melbourne Comedy Festival now, you know what it is. You understand what it could do for your life and your career and how it works. But when I started out, when my generation started out, it still was very much running away to join the circus. And we were very lucky that there were certainly people within the comedy industry who were making a living doing comedy. But at the time, I was a journalist and people were like, why would you give up journalism to go into comedy? Whereas now, if you had a kid who was setting out on a career and they said, I want to be in comedy or I want to be in journalism, you would say, be in comedy. It's a much bigger industry. There are many more jobs you can do around it. Like, you know, there's so much more money going into it. It is growing as an industry, which is not something that you can say about journalism. But we didn't know that at the time. We were so lucky that we went into this industry... Not with all those expectations. I didn't expect that I would get to do radio or host a TV show or any of these sort of things. I just wanted to do a show at the Comedy Festival. And then I wanted to do a show at the Comedy Festival again. And I hoped that I could do one in a bigger room. And that's all I really wanted. And in those 25 years, the Australian radio and television and all these industries became these big substantial industries that suddenly i'm like oh i'm part of this thriving substantial industry with all these various opportunities that spring off this industry but i was lucky that i did not go in with the expectation that they were the things that i was going to get to do anyone who goes into comedy now there's got to be a little part of them at the back of their mind is like, well, I want to be like Dave Hughes, or I want to be like Becky Lucas, or I wanna be like Auntie Donna, like, or I wanna host a radio show like Marty Sheargold. Though they, they would already have these expectations in their mind as they go in. And and we were very lucky that I'm sure we had hopes and ambitions and dreams, but they very much were hopes and ambitions and dreams rather than expectations.
0: Mm.
1: We've talked um talked about uh, television and and radio more about television. So I I would like to ask about the challenge in particular of uh, of breakfast radio and replacing uh, Mick Malloy when you did. Was that a daunting task for you? Was it a no brainer? Was there a reluctance? Um, what was that time in your life like?
2: Oh, uh, so no, there was no reluctance. I mean, because it was it was one of those things where Mick had you know clearly been pretty instrumental in. The decision making process. Like, you know, he'd certainly talked to me months beforehand around the idea of like, yeah, that he was going to move on. And did I think that, you know, it would be something that I would be interested in doing? And so we'd had a few conversations about, you know, what his experience of it had been like and, you know, what he thought the, you know, the pros and cons and the strengths and the strengths and weaknesses and what I could achieve and what I couldn't achieve. And I also really like the challenge of, like day-to-day radio, the problem I have with day-to-day radio is I don't have that many opinions, is honestly the truth. I'm off social media too now, and I was talking to Husey about this the other night, and I said to him, I said, what you realize is that for the last you know decade plus, we have been trained by this system that fools us into thinking that it benefits us, but it really benefits the companies that make these systems, these social media systems, and they have trained us to have an opinion on everything. You have to have a take on everything, whether something's good, bad, or indifferent. You have to have a take. We are in the, you must have an opinion business. And that is amplified by doing breakfast radio. You know, the amount of times you have to have a take one way or the other on, you know, the issue of the day where the truth of it is that often The correct answer to that question is I have no opinion. I don't care. I am not interested and my opinion is not valid regardless of what I think, whether it's good or bad. That is actually the more realistic way to live a life, the healthier way to live life. So the appeal of that show, you know, part of the reason that I'd never, there'd been other offers to go back and do things, but the appeal of that show was that I felt like that wasn't, going to be what was demanded of me in in the way that if they'd said it's the will anderson show you clearly have to have much more of an agenda and an opinion around whereas i knew with that show that you know i mean if you're working with eddie maguire like you you, you've got opinions covered (laughs) you know there's already somebody in there (laughs) who's going to have plenty of opinions on things and and that's great for me because i'm absolutely fascinated by Teasing out someone's opinion or countering their opinion for the sake of hearing more about their opinion or having fun with their opinion—that—that that to me, I do love. That's one of the strengths of what I have. I love hearing other people's opinions and playing around with them. And I guess you know that's why things like philosophy, maybe even why things like Gruen have been successful, is that, like, I—I I don't, I'm not interested in advertising, but I'm interested in why they're interested in advertising. I'm interested in what they think about advertising. If Gruen was, here's a bunch of my opinions about advertising in the advertising industry, we wouldn't be doing it anymore and I wouldn't be interested in doing that show. And it was the same with the radio with Ed. It's like, part of the fun of it was that there was no expectation that I'd come in and be like, here's my hot take on what Dan Andrews did today or here's my hot take on what's going on in the footy. All that stuff was covered by the other people in the room and then my job was to be yeah, you know, the icing on the cake to use a baking analogy for the food podcast. <laughs> um you know, the cake was already baked. You know, you just had to come and ice and decorate it every day and and not and, leave it out
1: in the rain. <laughs> yeah, well, that's
2: right. <laughs> so it was fun. It was like a it was a fun opportunity, like it was a really challenging thing to do. And and this is when we get back to the idea of what do you prioritize? Because there are points where when you are a stand-up comedian, these other opportunities come your way. And whether it be a television show or whether it be a radio show or whatever it might be, you know, an opportunity to write a book. I wrote a book last year. These opportunities come your way. But would that book have been different if I just took a year off to write a book? It would be a very different book. Would that radio show have been different if I just was willing to drop stand-up comedy and like I would have stayed, you know, there's no doubt because I liked the show. I enjoyed what we were doing and the show was still going well. Like, you know, while I was there, the numbers were still great. So there was no compelling reason to go. And in fact, if anything, the compelling reason was probably to say, let's cut some other things out of your life so you can concentrate on this more. But it's just at the end of the day, when you line it up and you do the schoolyard pick of who you want on your team, I always pick stand-up comedy first. And there is a very tough thing it's not the breakfast radio itself, although part of it is. You know the hours. There is no doubt about the fact that when you're a stand-up comedian, it's mostly night work, and when you're a, you know, breakfast radio person, it's early in the morning work, and those don't go very well together. But it's more the fact that you've done an entire show by nine o'clock in the morning. The show itself is fine. Like I love doing the show. You get energy from being on air and doing the show. You never feel tired during a show. But at like nine o'clock in the morning, when as a comedian you're then meant to go well here's my day i'm going to be creative i'm going to think of something that i'm going to do on my stand up show i'm going to rest for the you you just don't have that you, you're done for the day He's you know fried. <laughs> yeah yeah so and and what are my opinions like because my stand up show will normally have like four or five really that's it really four or five opinions in the entire show you know that i'm exploring often it's really one theme that i'm just teasing out over an entire hour of the show whereas you know often in the morning you might you're burning through 10 or 12 you know takes or opinions or you know, hearing these extremes and a lot of my work also just doesn't play in extremes anymore like when you first start out you know of course you like a teenager everything is good or bad you know black or white and you know i i hate this and i love this and comedically those are you know helpful themes you know it's easy for an audience to like to understand i hate this you know i that old school i hate my wife or whatever right like that's my perspective But for me, that's not an interesting comedic topic, you know, just that black and white. Like, I want to know, do you really hate your wife? Are you pretending to hate your wife for public consumption? How does your wife feel about the fact (laughs) that your act is talking about hating your wife? Is she into that because you get it out all on stage or is she – like for me, it's the complexities of these things, picking them apart and then trying to put them back together in a shape that makes sense is what I find interesting. And so clearly that's why a podcast, for example, is – can be very much an ongoing conversation where you're thinking about something. Like if you listen to five years of philosophy episodes, you hear me go back to the same themes or the same stories often, but through a different prism because I'm talking to a different person and they have Mm. a different perspective. And so constantly it's like taking that thing that you know that is important in some way, that story that you find that is pivotal to you or how you view the world, and then trying to look at it from a different angle or trying to pick it apart in a different way or rebuild it in a different way. And so radio it, it just unfortunately, it does not allow it it does not allow the things that I find most interesting about communication. So it's always fun to do. And if I lived in a world where I couldn't do anything else, I'd be very happy to do radio all the time. I always, I I love it. I love guesting on other people's shows. I feel like that's my favorite thing to do. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're doing these stand-up tours, like I'm in Adelaide at the moment and, you know, I've talked to every Adelaide breakfast radio show, AM and FM this, you know, in the last week or so doing publicity and I enjoy them all because to me that's more fun. It's more fun for me to be able to go into, you know, the Nova breakfast show and entertain them in a way that, the Nova audience will like and talk about things that the Nova audience into and then go to SEN and be able to talk about sports and entertain them in that way. I find that probably the most interesting is going into other people's worlds and being able to play around in their world with it. That that keeps it fresh. So really I don't need my own radio show. I just need to be a guest on everybody else's show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Will Anderson, comedian, writer, TV and radio presenter, podcaster and baker. Um, Thank you so much for being on our show. We've really – we've had a ball having a chat to you. Thank you. We'll see you in Melbourne for the Comedy Festival. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and
2: Kevin Hillier.
0: Uh, he's a very busy man, but a very talented man and a very nice man he's too. He's a very so, nice man. What yeah. a great
1: insight into, uh, particularly for me, living with uh, with the level of, of of chronic pain that he um, yeah. he puts up with most days. That's not good. Yeah,
0: not good. All right, let's get to. Uh, <laughs> I, and I should mention, yeah. I should mention Will's shows for the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which of course starts in April. Uh, he'll be up and running uh, for that and uh, all other shows. Go go to his website, mm. and on his website you'll see that he says, "I never update this website." <laughs> if you want to find out where I'm playing. Okay. Click here. So click there and you'll find out where all his shows are.
1: Go, you good thing. All right. The food poll, deviled eggs or devils on horseback.
0: Oh, what a choice.
1: Terry Daniel will start us off. Well, that is an interesting mix. Both yummy, but I will vote for the deviled eggs. Silvana says deviled eggs for me. (laughs) I so know which one you wouldn't have, Kevin. Artie Stevens says, okay, look, a couple of very tasty canapes here. (laughs) Oh, For, well. <laughs> for moi. Oh, there's that French oh, that French stuff coming in hey, again. For, for moi. moi. The deviled eggs are the goat, but don't come near me for a week.
0: Oh, that wouldn't be hard. Uh, Joylene <laughs> says both. Really? Yum.
1: Lena Massiti says. No, a, do
0: Wayne. You do Wayne.
1: Oh, okay. Well Wayne's cropped no, Wayne. up in the middle. Yeah, Wayne
0: uh, Wayne Dwayne's had a, a small thought on this one, not a great I big, huge no thought. I have no
1: idea what either of these things are. The one with Bacon, although the potential for bottom burp-based hilarity does make the egg one tempting.
0: Don't worry, there's a bit of bottom burp-based hilarity coming from the egg one too. <laughs> uh, Lena says uh, deviled eggs.
1: Lisa Marie, I love deviled eggs.
0: Sue Landry says devils on horseback.
1: Rebecca says I used to love deviled eggs. I know it's possible to make them vegan, I just haven't tried it yet. I don't know what the other things are, but <laughs> vegan bacon <laughs> is uh, easy and delicious. delicious. Delicious, so I will say yes to that.
0: Uh, And I can remember people standing (laughs) at parties in the '70s, going, "What are they? What's what's that?" Uh, Eddie Olix says, "Eggs." Rob Elliott. Eggs. Glenn Rodder says, "I can't say that I've uh, eaten these, Paddo, but they look interesting."
1: Sharon says both. I often get called upon to make deviled eggs. Uh, it's been quite a few years for now, though. Dole.
0: <laughs> uh, oh, hang on, no. Sorry, doll is I- devils on horseback. It's not. It's not. A, <laughs> what do you think I, it was a home I struggle
1: with acronyms.
0: <laughs> you thought it was a home assistant? Yeah, I Dolls. did.
1: Don't It's a bit like getting the L O L mixed up when you say laugh out loud and you think it's it's lots of love. Oh that's terrible, Muriel. It's been quite a few years
0: since the devil's on horseback. Which will now become known as the Dole.
1: Sorry, Sharon. I completely mutilated that.
0: Rachel Smith says neither.
1: Daz Smith says, oh, that's a tough one. I'm going with anything bacon.
0: Charlene says deviled eggs. Mark
1: Stevens, Deviled eggs. They are iconic.
0: Kate Stevenson says, oh, now that's tough. They're both glorious. Me, fence, eating (laughs) the two.
1: Jim Wilson says, it's a big no to both. Deviled egg at a pinch.
0: Uh, This hard one says, uh, Juliet, deviled eggs, I think, just by a whisker. It's
1: a hard-boiled one. (laughs) There you go. Old croaky, tough choice, um, but it doesn't matter how far in advance they are made, deviled eggs remain Moorish.
0: Morish is not a word that gets used a lot these days. Good on you, old croaky. Uh, Steve Bastoni says, bacon and on and on and on.
1: (laughs) Michelle says, I don't eat eggs or prunes, so I'll just have the bacon.
0: Fair enough. Michelle says, another Michelle, different Michelle, uh, definitely can't put these two up against each other. Uh, Both are equally number Uh, one for me.
1: Angie Pryor says, eggs for her.
0: Davin says, both are delicious.
1: Sue Hosking, deviled eggs for me.
0: Uh, Karen Young says, (laughs) don't. Oh, geez, no, she says now, devil's on be horseback. No, nice. oh! My first experience with these was the product of Julie's cooking class at the Curranbarra High School. How did
1: you know what KHS was Curranbarra High School?
0: Well, I knew the DOH was devil's on horseback. <laughs> what is KHS?
1: Oh! Rub oh! it in. <laughs> Oh. oh, you're not going to let me forget that. Leone says deviled eggs, yummo. Yes, oh. and deviled
0: eggs win no, by. The dull wins. Uh, <laughs> dull. No, the doll wins. Dole. No, the deviled eggs win oh. uh, handsomely, oh. handsomely. Well,
1: they're still made uh, today um, as, a, as a party or barbecue treat.
0: You would have to force me.
1: No, you wouldn't. Yes,
0: you would. No, no yes, sorry. Yes, no, you would. You, no, no, no. You can't stand Ugh.
1: boiled eggs in any way, shape or no. form, Ugh. especially not, you know, having oh, like the that. yolk screwed oh. up and then piped back in. Oh, I love
0: eggs, but not like that. Mm. Is it because
1: of the smell of yeah, boiled eggs? Yep,
0: that's Just part puts of it. You off. That's part of it. And that's te- why
1: I eat as the, many as I can on and a and weekly basis. And the texture basis. of
0: boiled eggs is totally different to the texture and of po- scrambled, or poached. poached, or or fried. I love fr- I fried eggs. Last night for dinner. Mm. Um with a couple of snacks. Just, just what I felt like. But boiled eggs, no God, just can't.
1: Well, not even a soft runny boiled egg. I can
0: have a I can have a boiled egg like that, yes, but yeah. I can't I, I'm not that keen on the um, and when they get cold, mm. they take on a, 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 a rub a more rubbery consistency mm. that I don't like. Mm. And I just sit there and I go,
1: do <laughs> Oh. Why do I get the impression this this F is going to Wait, have some, um, some Homer sound just, effects? For those people who listen
0: to both versions of this, uh, this uh, the radio show and the <laughs> podcast, by the time we get to do the radio show links, Sarah now knows what DOH means, so it'll be a totally different food poll to the one that you've just enjoyed here because <laughs> you'll really be all arty farty when we get to the radio one and go, oh, yes, and she says, devil's on horseback. <laughs> So all the the, dull jokes you've just heard will not be in the radio version.
1: It's as amusing as you're making (laughs) it. Oh,
0: goodness me. Hope you've enjoyed this (laughs) edition. Um, No, you have. Food Bites, uh, trust me, we've had a a really (laughs) s*** morning and this has just brightened it all up. Um, Enjoy the rest of your week. Dull. Thanks for listening to Food Bites. Check out our Facebook page for recipes, tips and all the latest news. That's Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier.